Thank you, Baba. Long, long ago, in a forest far, far away, lived a legendary hero named Robin Hood. In those days, King Richard the Lionheart was the noble and just king of England, but he was away fighting the Crusades, and so he left in charge his wicked and greedy brother, Prince John. During Prince John's reign, Robin Hood was unjustly condemned as an outlaw and hunted by the government. But of course, Robin Hood outsmarted Prince John and his lowly accomplice, the Sheriff of Nottingham. And he used his skill as an archer to resist that great evil, to, to rob from the rich and give to the poor. He spent his many days and years fighting against the injustices around him, trying to restore some order, some goodness to Nottingham and Sherwood Forest and beyond. But despite his best efforts, Robin Hood was ultimately unable to undo the evil that Prince John had done. Robin Hood and his merry men remained outlaws. There was nothing that Robin Hood could do to undo that. Some of his men were unjustly imprisoned. Some, not in the Disney version, but some were killed. Meanwhile, Prince John and the Sheriff of Nottingham enjoyed great luxury and great reward and seemed to go absolutely unpunished for all the wickedness that they had done. Even though Robin Hood could do some good, nothing he could do would ever turn the world right side up. As long as the king was away, there was no lasting justice, not in Nottingham. That was a reference to the Disney movie, if you knew that. If you didn't, that's okay. In some ways, wow, you guys are struggling this morning. In some ways... Our lives in this world are the same. Often, those who strive to live rightly suffer for it. What was it that Billy Joel sang? Only the good die, what? Young. And often, the evil prosper. They, they seem to have everything that they want. They seem to get away with it, and even when they get caught, as long as they have enough money to pay for the right attorneys, they end up not really dealing with much. The best that we can do in this world seems to be something like a Robin Hood sort of justice. We can do little bits of good here and there, and yet the world continues to remain upside down as long as the king is away. I want you to imagine the day that the news spread throughout Nottingham that King Richard was returning. There was probably fear and trembling in Nottingham Castle as Prince John and the sheriff knew that the, the king was returning. But surely in Sherwood Forest, there was great joy and great delight. You can just imagine someone saying, rejoice because your king is coming 
to judge. If you're not already there, I'm going to invite you to turn again in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. It's going to help you immensely if you have a Bible open that you can follow along. So I think it's on page 988 in one of those black Bibles, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. It's going to help you to be able to follow along as we go through the passage together. So many of you are first-timers here with us this morning. That's wonderful. We're so grateful that you're here. Our normal practice at PBC is to take a book of the Bible and to just walk through it. So we'll try to teach what the Bible says, and we've been in the book of Matthew for what seems like a decade or so, although it can't quite possibly be that long. But guess what? We're almost home, right? So just press on to that golden shore. We're in chapter 25. We're near the end. And at this point, it is now the final week of Jesus' life on this earth prior to his crucifixion. It's Tuesday night. They enter the city, there's great debate with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, all these questions. Jesus responds marvelously to each one. They're leaving the city. The disciples say, wow, look at this amazing temple. Jesus says, yeah, by the way, that thing is going to be completely destroyed. They ask questions about it. Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, Matthew 24, and then about his return. We looked at some of that last week. And then we'll uh, conclude today. Now, one of the things that I've tried to encourage you as we've walked through the Olivet Discourse, this section of Matthew's gospel together, is that eschatology, the doctrine of last things, what the Bible says about the end is meant to be something that encourages you, not scares you. This is meant to be, the fact that Jesus is returning is something that, if you belong to him, should cause great excitement and joy. And one of the reasons is what we're going to discover in our text this morning, and that is the fact that Jesus is coming to judge. The big idea that I hope to communicate from, God, from our text this morning is that we should rejoice because our king is coming to judge. Now, it is true that judgment and joy do not often seem to go together in our minds. That seems like uh, oil and water, doesn't it? Judgment and joy. In fact, if we're honest, Christians are sometimes embarrassed when we talk about the judgment of God. It's kind of like the crazy uncle that we like to try to keep away. Maybe he's there on family reunions, but we really don't want to introduce him to anybody. And when you have to, yeah, the Bible does talk about judgment and hell and things like that, but let's just avoid that as long as possible. But what I want you to see this morning is that judgment, rightly understood for the Christian, should be a cause for great joy. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you're here visiting with us, but you're not a follower of Jesus, this can be the day of greatest joy for you, because today can be the day that you turn from your sins and trust in the one who died so that you can be saved from that judgment. So in order to see how this can be a cause for rejoicing, we need to ask and answer six questions about the final judgment. 
So that's what we're going to do with God's help as we walk through the passage together. Six questions about the final judgment. Question number one, when? When is it? When is the judgment? Now, with each of these questions, I'm going to give you the answer, and then I'm going to show it to you in the text. So the answer is that the final judgment happens immediately after the return of Christ. Look at our text, Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. That phrase, Son of Man, it's Jesus' favorite nickname for Himself. So you could say, Jesus is saying, when I return then I'm going to sit on my throne of judgment. When's the final judgment? When Jesus returns. Now, some Bible teachers believe this passage isn't referring to the final judgment at all. Some Bible teachers say that there are actually three future judgments. Uh, They believe that this passage is referring to a judgment that uh, determines who's going to enter into the millennium, uh, there is a judgment in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 for believers. And then there's a third judgment called the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. Here's, here's my interpretation, and I could be wrong, but I think all of those passages are all referring to the same thing from different perspectives. So there is one final judgment. Here's one reason I think that. If you look at this text, at the end of this judgment, both the sheep and the goats, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, enter into not a millennial, a millennium, but into an eternal destiny. This is the end. This is the final judgment. This is it. So, when Jesus returns, when we see Him in the sky, Judgment is coming right then. That's when it's happening. Um, Revelation teach, just, is, just, uh, describes this in Revelation 20, verses 11 and 12, where it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So so here's what this means practically, brother, sister, friend. There will not be a second chance or a warning period for you to prepare for final judgment after the return of Christ. You hear what I'm saying? Once Jesus appears in the sky, judgment's coming. It's too late. You cannot wait until all of a sudden you start seeing piles of folded up clothes because everyone was raptured away. Now it's now I know. Now it's time. Nope. There's not going to be another moment where you say, now is the time to repent and believe. No, dear friend, now, today, this moment is the time to repent and believe. 
The very reason why Jesus stresses no one knows the day or the hour of the Son of Man's return is so that all of us would be prepared now. Why? Because right after His return will come judgment. So when will it happen? Immediately after the return of Christ. Perhaps you're hoping that perhaps, maybe, you can escape judgment on a technicality. If you're thinking that, then we need to ask and answer a second question, and that is who? Who is at the judgment? Who is at the judgment? There are two answers to this question. First, Jesus the judge is at the judgment, and second, everyone who ever lived is at the judgment. Let's consider first Jesus the judge. Look at verse 31 again. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. So Jesus is saying, when I return, I'm going to judge. Now, if you grew up in church, that's probably not really that significant of a claim to you. Jesus is going to judge. Yeah, I already knew that. But think about what that must have sounded like to Jesus' disciples to a first century Jewish man or woman. They knew that God, Yahweh, was going to judge. They knew that. It's all over the Old Testament. They knew that the God who said to Moses, I am that I am, He's going to judge. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 says, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither, neither shall they learn war anymore. They knew that. They were expecting that sort of judge. So what's significant about what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, I am that judge. A lot of people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. With all respect, the people that say that have not carefully read the New Testament. Because Jesus repeatedly, consistently says that He can do the things that only God can do. Including judge. The one who is coming to judge the nations is nothing but no one but God Himself, and that is Jesus Christ. Here's what this means practically. If you're not a Christian, there is no more important question for you than to, than to determine who is Jesus. Who is He? Is He who He said He was? Was He just a good person? Did He even exist? If Jesus is who He said He was, then He demands your entire life. All of it must be devoted to Him. There's nothing more important than for you, dear friend, to figure out who this Jesus is. If you're here, by the way, this morning, and you say, yeah, I want to know, who can help me? Would you talk to me or one of our other pastors after the service? We would love to connect you with somebody who would walk through a simple course with you called Christianity Explained, where we'll take six weeks and sit down with you and just go through the Gospel of Mark and some of the key truths about who Jesus is. 
just for a second, pastors, would you raise your hand? Our elders, just raise your hand for just a moment. Keep it up. These are the guys. We, and not, we're not the only ones here, but we would love to help you if you want to figure out who this Jesus is. Come to one of us. We'd love to help you. But there's no more important question than that. If, if you're a Christian, here's why this is good news. Your judge, your judge is the very same one who died for you. I told you a couple of months ago about the last ticket that I had, and I had to go to court. It was nice when I walked into the courtroom, and I saw the guy standing behind or sitting behind the bench was my neighbor. Oh, that's nice. It's my neighbor. He knows me. Well, it doesn't always work out well just because he knows you, but how much better if you see the judge is the one who has scars in his hands and feet because he died for you. That's good news. How much better news could there be? It's Jesus. He's my judge. He loves me. That's glorious good news. Well, the second the second group of people that is going to be there at the judgment is everyone who has ever lived. Look at verses 32 to 33. Before Jesus will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. By saying all the nations will be judged, Jesus doesn't mean that he's coming to pronounce judgment on nation states, right? So it's not like Jesus is saying, okay, United States, you guys get a, a, you know, a B or a B plus, South Korea, F, Russia, F, England, you're, you're a C plus, Canada, eh, you know, it's not like that, okay? When he says he's judging all the nations, he means all the peoples in all the nations. The same phrase is used in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where Jesus says to make disciples of all nations. We don't make disciples of, of governments. We make disciples of people in every nation. And so Jesus is saying that he is coming to judge every person in every nation, everywhere, from every era of history, past, present, and future. That's what he's saying. The truth is that everyone who ever lived will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's repeatedly taught throughout the New Testament. Listen to Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Uh, there's often some confusion here. I think many of us assume the moment you die, you immediately face your judge. The final judgment doesn't happen until Jesus returns. And so after we die, some of us who are believers will be in paradise with Christ. An unbeliever will be in Hades awaiting both of us the final judgment. And when Jesus returns, everybody is resurrected and everyone stands before the judge. That's what Revelation chapter 20, verse 13 says. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Here's what this means practically. If you're a Christian, let me ask you. 
Are you living in light of the final judgment? Are you living like you believe that there's coming a day when you will stand before Jesus, your judge, and as he said, you will give an account for every careless word, every careless social media post, every careless thought, every careless act? Are you living like you're prepared for that day? Christian, followers of Jesus, yes, it's glorious news that your judge is going to have nail-scarred hands because he died for you and he loves you, but he's still going to call you to give an account. Uh, Listen to Romans. Paul is writing, of course, to Christians in Romans chapter 14, verses 10 to 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all including Christians, stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Christian, we ought to be quickly confessing and turning away from sin whenever the Lord brings it to mind so that we can stand before our judge as best as possible with a clean conscience. One of the reasons why, by the way, especially if you're new here, we do a prayer of confession every week at Pocosin Baptist Church is because we sin every week. And by the way, that's not just us here at PBC. That's all the churches. We sin every week. We keep sinning. And so we we think it's important to take apart a time in our worship services to think about our sin and confess it so that we can when Christ returns, appear before our judge having no secret sin that's exposed that we haven't already brought to him. Are you living that way, Christian? If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, the fact that you don't worship Jesus will not exempt you from judgment day. Depending on where you live, there are certain judges that have no jurisdiction over you, right? Like a judge in Colombia, South America, has no jurisdiction over any of you. That's not true for King Jesus. You might say, I don't believe he exists. He's still your judge. You might say, I don't worship him. He's still your judge. Jesus is no tribal deity. He is the judge of all the earth. And whether you recognize him or not, he's still your judge. If I had stood before my neighbor as my judge with that speeding ticket and said, I don't recognize you and your authority over me, it wouldn't matter. So too, dear friend, whether you recognize his authority or not, he is your judge. So here's the question. What verdict will you hear on judgment day? In our courtrooms today, there's really only two possible verdicts. You're either found not guilty or guilty. In the courtroom of the final judgment, there are only two possible verdicts. We'll either be found to be a sheep or a goat. Now, there's nothing particularly better about sheep than goats as far as animals. They're both clean animals. They're both common throughout Israel. A shepherd in Jesus' day would often keep goat 
goats and sheep together. And then at nighttime, when it got dark, they would separate the sheep from the goats because the goats often needed to huddle together to keep warm. The sheep had all that wool, you know, they didn't need to do that. And so Jesus takes this common imagery of separating sheep from goats to use it as a picture of the final judgment. On the final judgment, there are not three options or four or five. There's two. You will either enter into eternal reward with Christ or eternal judgment apart from Christ. So let me submit to you, dear brother, sister, friend, there may be no more important question for you in this moment than figuring out how do I know what it takes to be a sheep. So that's the next question we want to ask from our text this morning, and that is what determines the judge's verdict? What determines the, judge, the judge's verdict? This is where the final judgment starts to get scary for some of us. If we're honest, many of us have read this passage of Scripture, and we see what Jesus says, and we hear the words that He gives to the sheep, and we wonder, have I done enough? Am I good enough? Do I deserve to be invited in? Am I going to be cast out on judgment day? I wonder if there's any that are wondering those things in this moment. If you are, I hope that you'll lean in for just a moment because I think those questions illustrate one of the reasons why we need to read our Bible very carefully. And if you look at the Bible very carefully in Matthew 25, verse 34, you'll notice that what determines the judge's verdict is grace alone. Look at the text. Matthew 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before, from before the foundation of the world. I want you to notice something absolutely crucial to verse 34. Jesus, the judge, gives the verdict before he looks at the evidence. That's incredibly important. In every courtroom, first evidence, then verdict. Jesus says, nope, verdict first. And look at the verdict. Look at what he says. Let's break it down. First he says, you've been blessed by my Father. Then he says, that blessing includes an inheritance. Do you see that? Inherit. Now, if, you, if you're receiving an inheritance, what's the implication? That you're a child. You're, you're a part of the family. And then notice that he says, that inheritance was given to you, prepared for you, from when? The foundation of the world. Now, those four Ideas, blessing, inheritance, adoption to a family, and the foundation of the world are all explicitly mentioned by the Apostle Paul when he talks about our salvation in Ephesians chapter 1. It's going to be on the screen. I want you to listen carefully. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world. 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for what? Adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And skip down to verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now here's what that means, brother, sister, friend. You will not pass the test on judgment day based on your performance. Oh, that is gloriously good news. If you leave here thinking that the way to survive final judgment is to try harder, either I have done a horrible job communicating or you have done a horrible job listening. The way to receive the verdict of sheep on the final judgment is not by trying harder. Here's the way. The grace of God in Christ. That's it. Have you been adopted into the family of God? Have you been chosen from before the foundation of the world? Have you been granted an inheritance? Have you been welcomed in? Have you been elected by Christ? Have you repented and believed in the gospel? Those are the questions. Perhaps you hear that and you say, well, that really isn't helpful. How do I know if I'm elect? How do I know if I'm one of the ones that was chosen? How do I know? Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher from England, said this that's very helpful here. He says, and I quote, Many persons want to know their election before they look to Christ, but that is not possible. It is only to be discovered by looking to Jesus. Do you fear yourself to be a lost, guilty sinner? Go straight to the cross of Christ. Look to Jesus and believe on Him, and you shall make proof of your election directly. For as surely as you believe, you are elect. If you will give yourself wholly up to Christ and trust Him, then you are one of God's chosen ones. But if you stop and say, I want to know first whether I'm elect, you do not know what you're asking. Go to Jesus just as you are in all your guilt. Leave all curious inquiry about election alone. Go straight to Christ and hide in His wounds, and you shall know your election. Go and put your trust in Him, and His answer will be, I have loved you with an everlasting love. There will be no doubt about His having chosen you when you have chosen Him. Dear friend, here's what that means. Here's what you need to do. Repent. And believe. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. That's how you hear those glorious words on Judgment Day. Come, blessed of my Father, enter into the inheritance that was prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Rather than trying to figure out if you've been chosen by God, just look to Jesus. It certainly is comforting to know that we receive eternal life by grace alone. But perhaps there's still some of you that are wondering, well, how do I really know? How do I really know that I've done that? 
Jesus is so kind, he gives us the answer to that question. Question number four is, how can I have assurance before judgment day? Assurance simply means to be sure, to know that you're a sheep. Another way to ask this question is, how can I know that I'm really a sheep? Here's the answer, and then I want to show it to you. We know that we belong to the shepherd by how we treat his sheep. Let me say that again. We know we belong to the shepherd by how we treat his sheep. After rendering the verdict, Jesus then presents the evidence that demonstrates the verdict, beginning in verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Often, again, we don't read this text carefully enough, and we misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Usually, it goes something like this. The way to prove that you're a real Christian is to help the poor, to help the imprisoned, to help the sick, to do things to help the weak and the needy and the outcast. And then we'll tell Christians, get serious about some form of social justice, and then you prove that you're a Christian. Now, those, all those things are good to do. So grateful our sister Angela is here today to talk about Thrive. We want to care for the poor. We want to do all of those things, but that's not exactly what Jesus is saying here. But he does tell us to do that in other places. What is he saying here? He's not talking about how we treat all people generally. He's talking about how we treat his people. You say, how do you know? Well, in verses 37 to 39, the sheep say, wait, wait a minute, Jesus, when did we feed you? When did we clothe you? Isn't that what you guys would say? If you saw Jesus on Judgment Day and He said this to you, say, Jesus, I've never seen you before in my life. I lived in 2023. That was 2,000 years after you ascended into heaven. I never gave you food. I never visited you in prison. What are you talking about? That's the question that these sheep ask Jesus. And notice what he says in verse 40. The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. What's Jesus saying? Who are his brothers? He tells us in Matthew 12, 50, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is saying, the way that you know that you're a sheep is by how you treat God's people. The way to know you're a Christian is by how you treat other Christians, how you treat the church. Now, to my dear, dear Pocosin Baptist Church family, this should be for you a wonderful, deep encouragement. Just thinking about the funeral services last week for our dear sister Mary Curley. I was 
deeply moved by this faith family. How many of you worked tirelessly in the kitchen to feed, to care for Jesus' sheep? How many of you came, some, many of you not even really knowing John or Mary, but just being here to serve His sheep, to love and care for His people? Why did you do that? Because you belong to the shepherd. I have watched through the years in this church, many of you have done exactly what Jesus is talking about in these verses. You've given each other rides. You've cooked meals for each other. You've visited one another in the hospital or at home. You've written cards and notes and encouraging emails. You've shared cars and clothes. You've prepared meals for funerals. You've taken time off work to grieve with one another. You've spent time with each other. You've listened to each other. You've asked good questions so you can help each other when you're hurting. You've prayed. I wonder if sometimes, Christian, you, you do all those things and you wonder... All that work, all that money, all that time, all that effort, does it really matter? Jesus is going to point to all those things on Judgment Day, and He's going to say, see, all those times you wondered if you were really a sheep, don't you see it? Don't you see how you loved my people? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So, dear Christian, press on. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Don't stop these simple acts of love to one another. God uses these things to bless other people, and He uses them to give you deepening assurance of your salvation. Jesus puts it this way in John 13, verse 35, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have what? Love for one another. As Jim was praying earlier in our prayer of confession, giving us a moment to examine how do we struggle to love each other. I hope you stopped and thought about that. My mind immediately went to the temptation that I've had for as long as I've been in ministry. Years, years and years ago, way back in the dark ages, when I was a green youth pastor in Tupelo, Mississippi, we were having some sort of a youth event and all the youth were entering in the building, and there was going to be this great, wonderful youth event. And they're all mingling and fellowshipping and having a good time. And I was frantically running around like a chicken with my head cut off, making sure that everything was set up exactly as it should be. I remember the particular moment as I was wandering around the building, and Holly said, Hobson, what are you doing? All these kids are here. They want to spend time with you. And I said, i got to make sure we have ice. And Holly said, none of these kids are ever going to say, man, my youth pastor was great. Man, he made sure we always had ice. What a great guy. I said, no, they're going to say, he loved me. So I stopped looking for ice and started loving the sheep. Still my temptation today. Still my temptation. It's tempting for me to focus on making all this work the way it's supposed to. Make sure everything's where it's supposed to be and everything's how it's supposed to be and forgetting to love you. So what do we need to do with that? We, Christians, we need to say, where am I struggling and how can I grow? Just a few suggestions on how we might grow. 
we have a lunch after the service today. Some of you probably thought we just had really amazing pasta air fresheners. I mean, like, man, this is great. No, there's actually food back there. So after the service, whether you registered or not, would you stay and eat with us? And, and let me encourage you. Let me encourage you. Sit with someone you don't know really well. Don't just mingle with the groups of people that you hang out with the most. Sit with someone you don't know really well and get to know them and learn them and care for them and love them. Here's another suggestion. We, we got a bunch of these little books. Um, how can I serve my church? I read this the other day. You really can't call this a book, by the way. Look how small that is. That's like a blog post. But for some of you, this is the perfect size book. That's great. So we got a bunch of these free for whoever will take one. How do I serve? How can I serve my church by Matthew Amati? Read it and think of one or two simple things that you can implement to better love your church. A third way is in your bulletin, there's an uh, insert for the Hampton Roads Pillar Conference. This is maybe to help build your theology of how to do this well. If you haven't signed up yet or interested in signing up, you can take a look at this and leave it in the offering box. Put your name on it and follow the instructions. Now, as, as important or as encouraged as I am with PBC, when I look at these verses, I do think that there are some, perhaps, in this room that need to receive a warning from this passage. We've already established that the way to know you're a sheep is by how you treat Jesus' people. But how do you know if you're a goat? Verses 41 to 45, Jesus brings up the same evidence to convict unbelievers. But here's what's interesting. Jesus doesn't say you're a goat if you imprison his sheep or starve his sheep or strip his sheep or expel his sheep or infect his sheep. Jesus says you prove you're a goat by failing to feed, failing to welcome, <coughs> excuse me, failing to clothe, or failing to visit. In other words, hear, hear this, hear this, friend. It doesn't take active mistreatment to prove that you're a goat, just passive neglect. An unbeliever proves he's an unbeliever not necessarily by being belligerent towards Christians, just by neglecting them. That's all it takes. This makes me shudder when I think about what might be happening in the hearts of some people in this room, maybe even in some members of Pocosin Baptist Church. I do not see everything, and I cannot see your hearts. But let me ask you, is there sheepiness in you? Are you going out of your way to care for Jesus' people? Do you even know each other's names? Are you trying to learn names? Do you know each other's needs? Or are you so detached from the body that you really have no idea how you could help? Do you skip out on members' meetings? One of the main places where we share important needs in the life of the church. Are you blissfully unsubscribed 
from every opportunity to hear prayer requests or important needs within the body. If you failed in one or more of these questions, I wonder why. Is it because you're too tired? You're too busy? Or is it just because you're not interested? Dear friend, none of those excuses will work on Judgment Day. I plead with you, if the Lord is convicting you right now of your failure to love His sheep, to confess it to the Lord and be restored before it's too late. If you want help in how to love His sheep better, talk to any of the pastors at PBC and we will gladly, lovingly help you think through how to grow in this. But are you loving His sheep? Fifth question we need to ask this morning. Reason why this is so important. Where will the judged be sent? Two answers to this question. The forgiven enter eternal life, and the unforgiven enter eternal punishment. Look at verse 46. And these, the sheep, or the, the goats rather, will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. I want to dig a little deeper in about what that means. So first, let's consider how the forgiven enter eternal life. I chose the terms forgiven and unforgiven because the difference between Christians and non-Christians is not that unbelievers sin and Christians don't sin. All of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. The difference is that some of us have been forgiven and others haven't. The forgiven enter into eternal life. Notice verse 6. It says the righteous enter eternal life. Jesus is not saying that we earn heaven by being righteous. Remember, Jesus rendered His verdict before He presented the evidence. So whose righteousness is it? It's His. His is the only righteousness that existed before the foundation of the world. You enter into heaven sheep based on the righteousness of Christ. But oh, what a gift we'll receive. Eternal life. You know, the Bible actually talks a lot more about hell than it does about heaven. And there's some answers to our questions about heaven, but there's a lot of mystery. There's a lot of things we just don't know. The other day, my seven-year-old Ella, she'd been really interested in heaven lately, and she asked me, Daddy, how old will I be in heaven? And I said, Ella, you'll be as old as you want to be. And she said, well, so I get to pick what age I'm going to be in heaven? I said, no, whatever you want, the age that you want when you're there will be exactly the age that Jesus wants you to have. In other words, in heaven, your heart is so changed that you only want what He gives you. Heaven is a glorious place. There will not be an unfulfilled desire in heaven. Because all that you could ever want will be satisfied in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 says, What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love Him. Christian, whatever heaven's going to be like, it's going to be better than we can ever imagine. 
What about the fate of the wicked? The unforgiven will enter into eternal punishment. I realize many of us get squeamish when we hear about that word eternal punishment. We're okay with some punishment. Does it really have to be eternal? Twice in our text, Jesus uses the word eternal. Verse 41, He threatens eternal fire. Verse 46, He threatens eternal punishment. Those are just two examples of dozens of times in the New Testament where Jesus mentions hell as being an eternal destiny. I think sometimes we think it's not fair, right? I mean, if I live 80 years and I reject Christ, why should I be punished for eternity if I only rejected Jesus for 80 years? It doesn't seem like it matches. You know, it's interesting. I've never heard anybody flip the argument. I've never heard somebody say, I've only been a Christian for two years, so I should only get two years of heaven. Nobody ever says that. Nobody ever says, well, you know, I followed Jesus for 20 years, 20 years of heaven, and then I just cease to exist. We want eternal life. We don't like the idea of eternal punishment. Why is it, why is it eternal? It's not because of the weight of the sin as much as it is the weight of the one who sinned against because God is eternal, and we have offended any, a holy and eternal God. The punishment is eternal. So, dear friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we plead with you to turn from your sins and trust in Him today, or there will literally be hell to pay when He returns. If all this is still a struggle for you, we need to ask and answer one final question. And that's why. Why should the judgment bring joy? I told you when we began that I wanted you to rejoice because your king is coming to judge. Maybe you feel like, I can't have any joy with this doctrine. I can't have any joy if I think about the final judgment. I want to show you three reasons why I think this can and should bring us joy, even though it's hard. And I'm going to do it through the story, a hellish story, of a man named Larry Nasser. Some of you have heard of Larry Nasser. For 18 years, he was the team doctor of the United States Women's National Gymnastics Team. But unbeknownst to many, Nasser was using his position of power to expose and abuse, exploit and abuse hundreds, hundreds of young, vulnerable female athletes, little girls, under the guise of medical treatment. What does that story have to do with the final judgment, and how can it help us to have joy in the final judgment? Well, first, the final judgment satisfies our longing for justice. Eventually, thankfully, Larry Nasser was caught in his crimes you cannot hear that story of what he did without longing for justice. This is evil. This is despicable. This should not happen. If it was your daughter, how would your heart rage for this man to be brought to justice? And Larry Nasser was eventually 
arrested, brought before a judge, and sentenced to somewhere between 100 and 235 years in prison. Some of you might think, good, justice. But that's Robin Hood justice. One of his victims was also a U.S. Olympian, a young lady by the name of uh, Ali uh, Reisman. Ali Reisman said that the, ju- the judgment was not enough, nowhere near enough, because when you added up the years in prison, it would be less than one year per victim. He destroyed the lives of hundreds of young girls. One year? That's not justice. If there is no final judgment, that evil like that, people get away with it. There's no judgment. What about a horrible man like Adolf Hitler who kills millions and gets to die on his own terms? That's not justice. What about people that exploit their entire lives and live fat and happy and die in old age? That's not justice. But if there's a final judgment, then there is justice. And every sin will be punished in one of two places, as B.B. prayed earlier, either in hell or on the cross. That's good news. That's good news. Second reason why the final judgment can bring us joy is because it enables us to forgive freely. Rachel Den Hollander was the first woman to publicly accuse Larry Nasser of sexual assault, and she bravely confronted him when he walked into the courtroom to face uh, to receive his sentencing. And by the way, ironically, Larry Nasser walked into the courtroom carrying a Bible. And Rachel Den Hollander, who is a Christian, bravely said this to Larry Nasser. She said, "The Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and His eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing." And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me. Do I extend that to you as well? How could Rachel extend forgiveness to such a perverted, sadistic, abusive, evil man? Because she believed in the final judgment. Because she believed that nobody really gets away with it in the end. And because she believed that she could trust Jesus, the great and perfect judge, to deal with everything rightly. And the final way that this ought to bring joy for us is because it highlights the glory of the cross. Rachel Denhollander didn't only believe in the eternal terror of final judgment. She believed in the sweet mercy of the gospel. And the final judgment shows us the glory of the cross. Imagine someone were to come up to you after the service and they were to say, I paid your debt. 
Don't worry, it's all paid. How would you respond to that? Well, it kind of depends on what debt they paid, right? If they pay your $2.35 fine from the library, it's like, well, thanks, man. I'll get you next time. But what if you had a $2 million debt and you're about to foreclose on your house and lose everything and you get home and you check your accounts and it's paid? Wow, something different has happened, right? When you understand the final judgment that's coming and you realize that Jesus paid that penalty for you, it highlights the glory of the cross. Now I want to serve His people because I love Him. I have, he has paid my debt. I don't have to pay the penalty for my sin. So now I can spend and be spent to love His people. Dear friend, we invite you to trust in that Savior today. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the glorious, sweet gospel. Jesus, we thank you that you came to this earth. You lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death in our place, paying the penalty for our sin and rose from the dead so that whoever believes in you can have eternal life. God, I don't know the hearts of the men and women and boys and girls in this room today, but you know everyone. You have the power to reach into the hardest heart. I pray that you would do that now. God, I pray that none would leave here today on their path to hell. I pray that none would leave this room without dealing with you. To those who have already put their faith in you, but are struggling with assurance. Pray that they be encouraged by what your word says. For those of us that belong to you but struggle sometimes to love your sheep, we pray that you would help us. It is hard sometimes to love each other. Forgive us for our failures and help us to strive, to press on, to keep fighting, to love one another well. May we even work on that this afternoon as we eat together. And we pray that in all these things, you would be glorified. In Jesus' good name, amen. Just stand with me as we sing together.